Hello. Welcome to Kicks and Beats Daily. We'll, we'll keep the title for now. Um, it's good to be back. Took a little hiatus from the podcast to um, to move and to, you know, take care of the little guy. Um, but we're back. Here we are. It's a new year. It's 2022. And um, we're going to change the format just a little bit. So instead of just random songs all the time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish off the albums. And I'll still do every other day. But like right now, to this today we're going to start with All Things Must Pass. So the next few Beatles-related episodes are all going to be devoted to All Things Must Pass. We're going to bust through all of them. And uh, I think that will help everybody enjoy the podcast a little bit more. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, but regardless, we're back. And uh, tell all your friends. Today we are talking about, and Happy New Year, by the way. It's 2022. Um, hopefully it's better than 2021. Fingers crossed. Um, so today we're talking about I'd Have You Anytime, which uh, is a song by George Harrison, released November 27th, 1970, as the opening track to All Things Must Pass, his epic triple album debut as a solo artist. And this song was co-written with Bob Dylan, and it's a very rare co-writing credit on a solo Harrison record. Um, the song was composed in November 1968, which um, if you watch the recent Get Back documentary on Disney+, Plus, you will know was just a few weeks prior to the band beginning work on the Let It Be album. So in fact, this song could have appeared on two Beatles albums before ultimately being released as a solo track. Uh, although I don't know, I mean, it could have been on Let It Be or Abbey Road. That's what I'm saying. It was written prior to those albums being recorded. I don't know if it would have fit on either one of them. So it was probably a good idea to have saved it. Um, there are other songs on this album, though, that I think would have worked on Beatles albums. Uh, and as far as rock albums are concerned, particularly at this point in music history, it is pretty crazy to open with a song like this. It's a quiet, sensitive ballad. And if you think about it, there isn't a Beatles album or a Kinks album to this point that opens with a ballad. The most unconventional album opener the Beatles really had was maybe No Reply or Two of Us, which are both acoustic folky tunes, but they're also upbeat and poppy. You know, they're not ballads, um, even if the subject of No Reply is kind of a love lost thing. It's not a ballad. Um, and then the Kinks to this point had opened all their albums with bangers. Everything is just... It opens with a big drum pop or a guitar riff or some or or a telephone ring, but um, with the possible exception of Village Green, which is a little on the softer side. But like the Beatles examples, I said it's still a catchy pop tune. It's not a ballad. Um, so for George to open with this track uh, was incredibly unconventional and pretty bold uh, for those days, and especially as your opening statement as a solo artist um, for this to be it. It's, that took some guts uh, as far as album programming. Um, I personally love opening live shows with a ballad, so that it's very possible that this album is what inspires that. But I also am approaching it with uh, 50 years of this album setting precedent for that. It is well known to most that this entire album is filled with musicians. ton of them, including um, it's basically where the band Derek and the Dominoes met. Uh, they're, they're the backing band for a lot of this album and uh, and a lot of the jam sessions on the third disc. And then, of course, there's Phil Spector's 
production, which is sometimes a little overreaching. Uh, I think it's perfect on this particular track, but there are some tracks that I wish he would have dialed it back a little bit. The guitar solo on this track, though, the one musician, well, the two musicians that we know for sure, obviously George Harrison, but the other musician we know for sure is on this track is Eric Clapton, who plays the electric guitar throughout. And it's beautiful and appropriate for the song, but it also isn't anything Harrison couldn't have done himself, and possibly better. Uh, There's one critic I read when I was researching this that said that it, you know it seems like Clapton is trying to do an impression of George on this. Well, if you're going to hire a guy to do an impression of you, why not just do it yourself? It's hard to say whether it was his insecurity over his own playing or just he had a healthy enough ego that he didn't need to be the center of attention even on his own records. But sometimes it bugs me uh, how often George would bring in Clapton to do something that we all know George could do just as well. And he does it all the way, you know, uh, up through cloud nine. But, you know, they were friends, whatever. As I've gotten older, I've actually waned in my appreciation for any of Clapton's non-blues-based guitar work. You know, he's a top-tier guitarist regardless. You can't deny that. But if you take him out of his blues sweet spot, as George does here, it really levels him out among the other guitar greats at this time. It's like, you know, sure, when he's just playing uh, Crossroads, he's he's a guitar god. But when he's playing like this, he is, in my book, no better than George Harrison or Keith Richards or any of those guys that, you know, were his contemporaries. But this isn't the Clapper podcast, so we'll, we'll move on from that. Uh, the extent of Dylan's contribution may just be the bridge, which is the all I have is yours, all you see is mine. Um, George wrote the first line, the first verse, and then, you know, Dylan was famously kind of in a writer's block at this time. And so George kind of persuaded him to come up with some more words. And in his own book, he says that Dylan came up with that bridge and then he finished it up. Well, outside of that bridge, there's not a lot going on um, You know, outside of the bridge in that first verse. So it makes sense that George wrote the rest. Uh, on April 30th, 1970, just a couple of weeks after McCartney announced his departure from the Beatles, Dylan and Harrison recorded a demo of the track, I believe in New York. Um, And serious recording of the album would begin a month later. Bob Dylan does not appear on this track. If anybody tells you otherwise, they are liars. Bob Dylan does not appear on this album outside of uh, this writing credit and then a, a George cover that he did later in the album. So like I was saying, it's not entirely sure um, who the personnel is on this track or any All Things Must Pass track um, for that matter. It's up for debate because diligent notes were not taken and uh, we are left to rely on faded memories. This track is likely, and this is the lineup that I I, I happen to fall more in line with, is it's likely George on acoustic, Eric Clapton on guitar, or electrics, uh, Klaus Vorman on bass, and Alan White on drums. Now, Alan White is also the drummer from John's Imagine album, and he would go on in just a couple years from this point to um, join the band Yes. So that's a big-time drummer there. Uh, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't sound like Ringo's drumming. It doesn't sound like Jim Keltner's drumming. It doesn't sound like Carl Rattle's drumming. So it stands to reason that it's Alan White. It does kind of sound like Klaus Foreman on bass, but this is also a simpler song 
um, well, it's not simple. We'll, we'll go into that in a minute. But it doesn't require a ton of extra bass work. He's doing a lot of long tones and just hitting hitting the downbeats. Um, but it does kind of, I do kind of tend to think it was uh, Klaus on bass. Bobby Whitlock, who appears on keyboards throughout this album, has a very different memory of this lineup. He claims that the rhythm section was the Derek and the Dominoes rhythm section, which is possible. They are the rhythm section on a good portion of this album. Um, it's hard to say which is correct, but it's it's enough to say that all these players played on some tracks on this record. So none of these guesses are bad guesses. They're all informed guesses. Um, but it's definitely not clear who is playing the vibraphone part on the background. And to me, the vibraphone is really what sets this song. Uh, I think the vibraphone, and there's a harmonium part in there as well, but I think that really let Phil Spector have his wall of sound without overdoing it where he overdoes it on some tracks. This one, he's kind of left to like, he's got this, this sound that, you know, envelops you, but it's not overdone. It's, it's very tasteful. And, uh, and that vibraphone part also kind of tracks with the chord progression that, that George has come up with for this song. And musically, the song hits a lot of the elements that contribute to his signature sound. There's unconventional rock chords and timing all over the place on this track. Um, he kind of sticks the melody more to the beat than he usually does, but everything else that are his trademarks are here. Uh, the timing for this song is tricky. And I'm sure someone who's listening who thinks they know more about music theory than I, I do is going to send me an email. Please do. I look forward to reading it. Um, but to my ear, and this is just to my ear, I don't have sheet music for this particular track um, to kind of base this off of, you know, even though those are wrong oftentimes too. But to my ear, in the verse, beginning with the introductory guitar solo, so from the very beginning, we have two bars of 4-4, four, four, one bar of 7-8, and we're going to subdivide that bar of 7-8 into 1-2, one, 1-2, two, one, two, one, two, one, and then three bars of 3-8, or one bar of 9-8, I don't care how you interpret that one, and then a bar of 2-4 before it repeats. So let me repeat that. We've got 4-4, four, 4-4, four, 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 7-8. Three eight three eight three eight two four. That's how I hear this. That is not super tricky. If I saw that on a piece of sheet music, I I would be able to play it. But it's also not four on the floor guitar based rock and roll. This is uh, his Indian influence coming out. You hear it. There's almost not a song in his entire catalog that doesn't utilize some form of shift between simple meter, which is where you can divide the beat in two. So like four, four, because we're going one and two and three and four and. So that's simple time or compound time or uh, complex time, which is where you're dividing it into three. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Um, there's almost every song he does practically does this. And then even as I say this, I second guess myself because the bar of seven, eight may actually be a bar of two, four, and then a bar of three, eight. But based on the phrasing of the guitar solo, I'm going to stick with my 7-8 claim. Because the the last three beats of that 7-8 feel like pickups into the next bar. Yeah, I'm going to stick with 7-8. So harmonically, the song is all over the place, too. Um, you know what? I'm just realizing that I didn't tune the guitar beforehand, so... 
here's hoping. Um, we start off with a G major chord, or a G major seventh chord rather, which isn't totally common in rock music, um, um, but it's not uncommon, but it's rarely at the opening chord. And the difference between the G major seven and a G seven is you've got this F sharp here. That's, that's what makes it sound jazzy and ethereal and all that kind of stuff. A regular G7 chord would be an F natural. But with this G major 7, we've got that F sharp. And then he just slides up three frets to a B flat major 7. So he's keeping that same chord structure. He's just going up to a new bass note. All right. And then already by the second chord there, we have left the opening tonality. He, he opens this song in the key of G, and it's a strong key of G. None of these chords, all those chords, or all those notes are in the key of G. Um, but then he slides up a minor third above G. So by going to that B-flat chord, there is no B-flat in the key of G. There just isn't. If there's a B-flat, it would be G minor. Um, so by the second bar, he is completely eliminating the original tonic. Um, and then he goes to a C minor 7, which sounds a bit more normal for rock and roll. Um, I mean, it is a minor chord, but you've got the, it's just a normal 7th chord. Because we're lowering that 7th again. And this functions, it's technically the 2 chord. If we've established the key in B flat major, this is technically the 2 chord for the key of B flat. Um, but harmonically, it's it's very close to the key of G major. Um, and that doesn't belong in the key of G in B flat. Just like B flat doesn't belong in G, G does not belong in B flat. G major, that is. Um, so even though it is technically a two chord in the key of B flat major, he's actually more using it uh, as chromatic movement. Because three of the notes in the C minor seventh chord can resolve down a half step, and then one note resolves up a half step, and you've got a G major chord. Okay, and that's not, I don't, I'm kind of glossing over that, but basically what I'm saying is that every note in this chord is a half step away from, or one fret away from, a note in the G major chord, which is the key we started in. So now we're back to where we started. And then for the turnaround, he just does a standard 2-6-5 progression. We've heard this a thousand times already on this podcast, we'll hear it a thousand more. It's a, it's a famous progression. <laughs> and then back to one. So essentially he presents a strong tonality of G on the first bar, immediately abandons it, and then through chromatic movement instead of diatonic movement, he returns to the key of G, and as soon as he strongly establishes the key of G, he abandons the 4-4 meter. So at any given bar in this verse, he's either abandoning the, to abandoning the tonality or abandoning the meter. It's clever, George. Uh, when he gets to the bridge, instead of using the D chord as the dominant, so we, I just said he ends he ends the verses on on the D, right? We're doing now. If we're in the key of G, this D is the five chord. So we're doing. Right? That's a five to one. But when it gets to the 
the uh, the bridge. Um, he actually, instead of using that D chord as a five, uses it as a four. So he's doing the Let me roll it to and resolves it on a on an A chord. This is called a plagal cadence. It's your Amen cadence. Amen. Right? It's a it's a four to one. Um, and then once he's there, he's just doing um uh, uh just basic chords. It's it's all it's uh you've got the four to one and then he's uh, doing a one five four. So A to E to D. All I have is then he switches to C major. Um, I'm not going to claim that he's doing any kind of harmonic shift there. He's literally just changing the keys, but it's the same thing. All you see is mine. So that's a one to five to four. But here, after that F chord, that four chord, he hits that A. And that's like the hook of the song for me. That is, it's just a, a gorgeous um, A. But he's not really doing it to get back to the chord that he started this verse on or this bridge. He's doing it to shift again. All right. So um, he's basically, since we're in the key of C, he's using it as like a five of five of five. So it's the five chord of the five chord of the five chord, which isn't really a thing. In reality, what he's doing is another chromatic movement because F, um, the F chord to A major to D major contains the notes C, 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 C sharp D, as well as F, E, D. And then the A is in all three chords. So we've got, you know, uh, So this is like chromatic movement. You've got one descending line, one ascending line, and then one constant. And then from there, he's just doing a, uh, he's holding on that D chord. And then A. And then, like it's nothing, back to the G, which is a weird transition um, harmonically, but it, I mean, it works. It's one of those things like, if you just do it, sometimes it just works. And in this particular case, it just works. And then that's basically it. Uh, all the verses follow the same structure as before. The, there's really nothing else going on in the song. It's a very simple, for all the complexity that I just named, it is actually a pretty simple tune. Um, but it's a great one. Fantastic album opener. I've always said that the first side of All Things Must Pass might be the best A side of, of any album. I mean, it's just one, two, three, four, five, just slaps you in the face is a heck of a statement. But, you know, most people would have uh, opened with My Sweet Lord, and he saves it. And I think that's, uh, like I said earlier, that's some bold album programming, but it totally works on this one. All right. So that's it. That was uh, I'd Have You Anytime from All Things Must Pass. As always, you can email me at kinksandbeats at herohabit.com. Give me a phone call 
and I will play it on the air, uh, 925-494-1739. And you can find all the information you need on how to get a hold of me and all of our 200-plus previous episodes if you visit herohabit.com and um, look at the podcast button at the top of the page. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for continuing to subscribe. And um, I hope you will join us for leg two of this immense podcast that we're doing. All right. Take care of yourself, everybody. This podcast is presented by the Hero Habit Podcast Network. Swing by herohabit.com today to comment on this episode and poke around our growing database of sports and pop culture news, reviews, and collectibles. Herohabit.com. Collect your heroes.